これは豚獄型より入れたる。そうにて、そうろう。我未だ都を見ずそうろうほどに、この旅思い立ち、都に登りそうろう。Welcome to the Kingless Generation, a podcast on the deep history of class struggle, paleo parapolitics, and the demonology of capital. I'm your host, Fergal Schmudlock. That opening recitative was from the opening of a no play called Toru, in which the ghost of an elderly aristocrat is visited by a monk, a traveling monk, and that's the line of the The monk introducing himself at the beginning of the play. And I chose that because I feel very much like the Waki character, it's called,、uh, in a no play, which is usually a traveling monk and somebody who comes to a historical spot, someplace associated with a famous historical figure, and they encounter the ghost of that figure and then they. Perform a sort of exorcism or a sort of psychological analysis of the, the figure. And、uh, I feel like that's what I'm doing here somehow. I have spent so much time on Ivan Morris. I am, I'm haunted, I guess, by Ivan Morris,、uh, the Japanologist of the, the post war, right? He was a prissy little Lord Fauntleroy. Who was、uh, plucked out of. Was he plucked out of university? Yeah, I think he was at Harvard. And he was drafted and he went to the university.、Uh, was, is it, yeah, is it associated with the University of Colorado? It was in Boulder anyway. In Boulder, Colorado, the special Japanese language school where the teachers would have been、uh, going there to avoid being put in the concentration camps. the... One of the concentration camps where a Japanese American great teacher of mine was born is just to the northwest of that. You pass one reservation, and then before you get to another、uh, so called Indian reservation, right,、uh, in the middle of that, you have a Japanese American internment camp.、Uh, and that, that's where my teacher was born, by the way. And、uh, good old Ivan Morris, though. This guy, Ivan Morris, Jesus, he, he was the. So this time, I think what I'm going to do, I, I went into this a little bit with Prez last time, you'll recall, for my Weebs of the Ages series,、uh, which、uh, there's a lot to cover there. I have no dearth of material. We have Ezra Pound, we have Lafcadio Hearn. We have, they all have some kind of really close tie to Americanness here. I think I'm, well, for now, I'm, I'm sticking to American weebs.、Uh, and there's something that Japan does for y- your, your American weeb that is very special, right? As the, being the honorary white country that it is, right? Something about a certain kind of. Mm, yeah, I'll, we'll think about it, <laughs> what, what we can say.、Uh, but for now, so Ivan Morris, let me remind you what, why I'm interested in him.、Uh, I got into last time 
just the briefest bit about how he was very tight with Mishima. He actually, on his sabbatical in 1969 to 70, he was working at Columbia University, right? And he went to Tokyo for a year for a sabbatical. And during that time, he attended parachuting practice with Mishima. He translated the official Tate no Kai song, the song of Mishima's little militia there. And then supposedly after Mishima's suicide, uh, Ivan Morris was deeply affected. He, was, he fell into depression. It helped to precipitate the divorce with his uh, second Japanese wife, whom he was married to at the time, according to her. And, uh, so, and then he, out of this grief, supposedly, he wrote a classic of immediate post-war Japanology, The Nobility of Failure tragic heroes in Japanese culture, I think it is. And he goes through the sort of, uh, you know, lovable loser figure in, in Japanese culture, which is certainly not unique to Japanese culture, but it's definitely there. And he has this whole theory about how that fits in. I have some different thoughts now, though. Well, I have actually, God, I've read, uh, his first Japanese wife's memoir in Japanese. I've read his second Japanese wife's memoir, sort of like autobiographical novel in English. And I've read his would-be third wife, the Italian, the, the Bolognese Baroness. Uh, I think she really was a Baroness. Uh, she wrote a book about him. She wrote a book about him, which uh, not probably not coincidentally, uh, takes well. Let me. I'm not going to say. So, and then I've also read. So, Marcus, big thank you to Marcus of the Return of the Repressed podcast, turned me onto a book in Swedish uh, by Monica Brau, who was is a atomic bomb scholar, and she did a biography of Ivan Morris's mother. Edita Morris, who is a very fascinating figure in her own right, and who I think this time I'm going to mainly focus on and just kind of drill down into the background of Ivan Morris's family, because it is, you, could, you will never guess, you will never guess what his family is like, right? Last time we got into how he would be at department cocktail parties and always be holding a, an English pipe and an English handbag and a, an English cane, and even when he went with Mishima for parachuting training, he was holding an English umbrella and a fucking, I don't know. Uh, and uh, you would never guess who, what his parents did. Uh, <laughs> and, and I don't even quite know uh, myself. I'm, I'm inconclusive on what his parents' deal was. But I think this time that's what I'm going to start to get into. I have so much. And I got to just kind of break it down. I have to get into it and get going. So for this time, I'm going to do that. And to remind, to remind you, to remind myself uh, why I'm so interested in him, uh, let's check out his 1960 essay. Uh, he's still married to his first Japanese wife. Uh, he is, but he was at Todai. He was at the University of Tokyo here in Tokyo. Uh, for a while after doing grad school at SOAS in London under Arthur Whaley. Arthur Whaley, the famous, um, maybe secretly gay, uh, his 
widow burned all of his letters so it's not really known there's a there's a whole book on sort of gay people in asian studies which is interesting and they're they're on to something there there's something about you know maybe the the kid who doesn't quite fit in in his uh western society uh that's one of the things that they they will do uh in the case of whaley though i i don't you know it's not clear that he was uh, a closet case, in fact. Although there's plenty of hints, right? But his late wife, uh, they were tight with Ivan Morris as well, right? His second wife reports that they went to visit her. Her name was Alice, I think. And uh, she said, oh, let's go picnicking on the grave of Dickens. And they went and sat on Charles Dickens's grave and recited poetry and drank vodka, apparently. Uh, so that kind of person. Uh, Ivan Morris, he, in 1960, I'm going to read you, uh, this, is, this is, I think, a little executive summary of his much longer book on the right wing in Japanese politics, which comes out in 1960. You know, this guy mostly is translating literature into English in the beginning of his career. And then, you know, it seems uh, he announced to, well, because he promised Mishima, very shortly before, they used to have their coffee, they used to have breakfast after their morning training. The Tate no Kai militia members would come to, was it the Imperial Hotel? Yes, it was the Imperial Hotel. Uh, he promised him shortly before his death, right? So Mishima dies late 1970. And that's the, so I think Morris would have probably gone back to Colombia to start again in the spring of 1970, presumably, uh, or, you know, by the fall, anyway. Uh, so he would have just left Japan, just left Mishima, right? He was a frequent companion of him in that last year of his life. And, uh, you know, I went on a, a little family vacation to the lakes around Mount Fuji. And those lakes, there's, first of all, a tremendous Japanese military presence. Uh, very spooky sculptures everywhere of like Western style fairies and, and things. Uh, lots of fairies, lots of fairies looking strange and, and yeah. Um, but anyway, and it's a bit of a, a resort, a kind of resort, but you know, it's F Mount Fuji, so it's not like a, a beach or anything. It's kind of up in the mountains. There's a lot of cabins. Um, and there was a cabin for, which is owned by one of the universities that uh, I was able to get. And uh, yeah, the, around there, there is a Mishima archive. The, the official Mishima archive is there. And it seems to be under the auspices of, uh, it's, it was produced with a lot of help, I think, from the Japan Self-Defense Forces. And so that would be the place to go to really get into this if you wanted to get serious about that last year of his life. What was his relationship with Ivan Morris? Also, uh, Monica Brau, this scholar of the atomic bomb, who d wrote a book on Edita Morris, Ivan's mother, she worked with the Ivan Morris archive, which there is an archive in Columbia University. Uh, such as it is. It has some interesting omissions that I'm going to talk about uh, as we get into a, the topic of his death, actually. Um, that's an interesting topic. So, but 
one of the main reasons I'm interested in. Again, you know, I want to say a recent book on Mishima, which is very good and which I read a little bit last time about the fact that the Imperial Bank incident of 1948, in January 1948, a, oh, Japan is still under American occupation, a mysterious man pretending to be a public health official says a uh, virus is loose or something. It was, it was like this kind of thing. There's a virus or loose and you have to drink this medicine right now or you'll die. And he gave them a cyanide concoction. And he stole a, a paltry amount of money, maybe like $600 uh, today. So, uh, and then Mi Mishima is the one who appears. The young up-and-coming journalist, <laughs> Mishima Yukio, uh, who had been, you know, a little Lord Fauntleroy uh, with a very elite education during the war, uh, brought up to be a poet, brought up to be a literary figure, certainly. Uh, but he appears here all of a sudden uh, writing a little opinion piece about the incident saying, this is someone who understands the beauty of murder and destruction and... The book is called Mishima Aesthetic Terrorist, by the way, but I propose that we call Mishima Aesthetic Gladio, because I don't think he happened by accident. Nobody would deny that, but what if we take that idea seriously and look at it through the lens of parapolitics and the Cold War? You know, his entire life, he, he gets sold as... Per typically Japanese, that gets sold as something that is in Japanese culture because it's confused with the doctrine of, of impermanence in Buddhist culture. That will factor as well. Remember that word, impermanence. Uh, that is a core, you know, doctrine of Buddhism, uh, right? That all things are impermanent, including each one of us, and, right? That doesn't mean that we hate existence or something. That doesn't mean that we find it beautiful inherently that things uh, are impermanent. I mean, yeah, we, we find solid, we, we come to, uh, you know, the classic thing in Japanese culture is sort of like coming to terms with that, sitting with that and, you know, feeling it in all its, the sadness of, in a way of, of things passing away. But, you know, the fact that new things come into being all the time, uh, and, and that's the ultimate good news, I think, is that there is no essence that keeps you trapped in the ways that so many ideologies that deal in essences really keep you trapped. And Mishima is definitely in an ideology that deals in essences, 100%. And for that reason, I'm not the person to do it, but if you, so many things on this podcast, I give you license to take my little sketches, and um, if you don't feel too embarrassed citing a podcast in your dissertation or your book or whatever format uh, research takes in, what if humanity's still around in five years, uh, so just you know, give me a word, give me a shout out, but um, you can do this. Mishima is a Western esotericist. Mishima is a Satanist. He's not a, a Japanese nationalist. He's not uh, following anything in Japanese culture so much as he is following a Western occultist love of destruction and sadism. Literally, he loves 
Joan of Arc. He loves nightly romance kind of imagery, uh, but in a dark kind of esoteric register. He loves the Marquis de Sade, as do many liberal people uh, like Judith Butler, ironically, who has signed many a letter defending a sex abuser. Uh, not least Avital Ronell, right, the, the disciple of Derrida, who was caught, uh, you know, asking male students, kind of calling them to her room of an, of an evening. But yeah, Mishima was a Western esotericist, not a Japanese nationalist, right? Look into this. Somebody's got to do that properly. It's not me, but yeah. So... Yeah, he's got Mishima, and he, he's tied up with Mishima at the end of his life. Ivan Morris dies in 1976. Uh, we'll get into that a bit more. I've learned a lot more information about that since last time, so I have a lot more to say. I uh, just look forward to that. Uh, but for now, 1960, he, he puts in a British uh, Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, uh, the Royal Institute sort of um, gives a seal of approval to his book in 1960, right? Um, you know, as, as I said, he told his wife at the time, Nobuko, the second Japanese wife. Or no, that's not in 1960. It, it's in 1969, 70. Uh, he is, as I said, with, with Mishima. Mishima made him promise to translate his final tetralogy and so on. Uh, and... He and he and Donald Keene, you know, Ivan and Donald, nobody, no, not your students, not anybody else. He looked him in the eye and said, promise me you'll do that, right? Probably knowing, too, that he was going to do his um, disappearing act. Um, I'm not at all convinced that he's dead. I've said this before. I'll just say it again. But anyway, uh, supposedly his dying wish to Ivan Morris was this, and Nobuko was scandalized when he later just gave it to other people to translate and didn't do it, right? But he said her, to her at the time, uh, I have done lots of translating, and now it's time for me to write my own books because I'm, you know, I've arrived. I'm the department chair or something. He was chair for a while. Okay, so uh, that, I'm trying to get at the flow of his career. Sounds like he was translating for a while, uh, at that time, that was something that still needed doing a lot, I think, right? Um, I have heard from, from unnamed sources, unnamed sources tell me that I've, I've spoken to, that he plagiarized, like a lot of Japanologists of that generation, half of what he writes is plagiarized and pretty systematically he was like fed things to write in his uh, scholarship, they say. Uh, I wonder if that's true of other parts of his oeuvre, because, as I'm about to say, so he has a couple different kinds of writing. He has actually a lot of different kinds of writing. I just found out today about a whole different uh, part of his oeuvre that, for some reason, I have to get it now. I have to, well, I mean, I've, I'm in, you know, I'm in this deep. I might as well keep going. Because he wrote fucking puzzle books. I looked this up on Iberlibro, and... In Europe, there's lots of copies of his puzzle of puzzle books by a guy named Ivan Morris. There's like a fucking book that says the Ivan, Ivan Morris puzzle book and a couple other puzzle books. And I was like, no way. There's no way that's the same guy. There's just some other guy called Ivan Morris, right? But I was reading something by Nobuko again, 
And it's in there. She mentions he wrote puzzle books. This was what he did supposedly with his Nights of Insomnia. One thing, uh, in addition to sort of calling people on the telephone and playing telephone chess and things like this with his chess club. Um, quite a guy, you know. Uh, I mentioned last time he went to Gordonstown in, uh, is it in Scotland? Quite, uh, but it's, it's by, you know, the Jewish German education specialist who founded one boarding school in Germany based on his ideas of what a British boarding school was like. And then during the war, he fled the Nazis to Britain and in Britain was allowed to found uh, another school based on his idea of what British boarding schools were like. And he was known to have, quote, imposed his obsessions with sex and aesthetics on his pupils. This is according to Chambers Biographical Dictionary. The school emphasized physical rather than intellectual activities. They had a fucking Greek trireme that they would ride around the Scottish Isles, right? Uh, so little Ivan is going there. It was also attended by Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, as well as the fucking king right now, Charlie, and uh, his brothers, Andrew and Edward. They all attended Gordonstown. So as did little Ivan Morris. So he's got fucking puzzle books. I <laughs> wait until I am in the right position to order those, and then uh, I guess that'll... I gotta check them. Are there fucking secret messages in those? Do they have little messages for his, like, uh, fellow spies in there? Right? I gotta find out. Uh, because he was a spy. He was a spy. And, and the question of sort of what he might have done in addition to his Japanological work uh, is, is kind of what haunts me. Right? That's maybe part of what I'm so interested. Because he is a... He's some kind of figure in the Cold War uh, firmament. And he seems to be mostly pushing for a kind of liberalism, a kind of horseshoe theory, as you can most see in this little executive summary of his book from 1960, which is, represents yet another genre that he dipped his foot into, which is this political commentary. He actually, his first Japanese wife... Uh, Ayako, Ogawa Ayako, who is a ballerina, the, one of the first Japanese ballerinas after the war who was sent, given an internship with the Royal Ballet, and I think there too, very strategically placed there, and uh, she was a high-flying member of London, you know, high society, big dinner parties all the time. Uh, the kind of, this, this was the era when they had uh, the gossip columnists going around in a special van with, with flashing lights and so on, you know? I mean, interesting to compare to sort of Lady Dies uh, getting whacked and everything. Uh, it's a different... It was a different time, first of all, because these society papers were only read by a narrow elite as opposed to the paparazzi that uh, were used in the setup to Lady Dies hit. Uh, they were writing for a mass audience, taking photos to be on a supermarket uh, tabloid, right? That's very different, interesting. Celebrity culture is, uh, a mass celebrity culture is a very different thing from this kind of society paper at this time that, you know, would go around, right? And they would come to your, your parties, and, and so she was there, and that's where she actually met Ivan. 
I guess while he was at SOAS, right? And he worked for the BBC World Service as well, a broadcasting service doing nighttime broadcasts. Uh, that would be, you know, like Voice of America type stuff, broadcasting things maybe meant for a Japanese audience, maybe meant for a Vietnamese audience. Maybe he's, I don't know, is he coordinating Operation Phoenix or something? It's a little, you know, you could go, your imagination could go wild. But uh, anyway, uh, in 1960, he's doing this other thing. Uh, the reason why he was able to do that, Ayako's father was a screenwriter, I think, with Toei, the movie studio. And uh, he had deep connections with all the Yakuza. And so he got Ivan introductions to all the Yakuza. And that's why Ivan has this tremendous far right dossier and uh, use that to write this book on the right wing in Japan. Uh, his little summary that comes out the same year, though, in this magazine that I think at the time only the cream of the cream would have gotten this magazine, right? It's amazing to look how information used to be way more asymmetric than it is now. With the internet, it is true that it it's easier to get a lot of information out, as we are seeing with the genocide in Palestine right now. It wouldn't have been possible to so quickly get these images out of what the Zionist entity is doing. Uh, and, you know, all of this, that kind of information uh, accessibility, right, didn't exist. There was much more asymmetry. You had to have a subscription to this and that publication in order to be privy to a lot of information. There is a notorious issue of Fortune magazine, uh, the April 1944 issue, which lays out a lot of the same sort of stuff that you can find in, like, the Reichauer memo, and before that, the Japan plan. I know I've talked about that just mere months after Pearl Harbor, which you will know, listeners to my show will know that that was allowed to happen. Drills were scheduled for that day for a Japanese uh, air strike. And uh, that's part of why there was a very poor response to it and so on. Uh, there was lots and you know, it was, it was the, they needed a casus belli to get America in to the European theater mainly, right? Winston Churchill and Roosevelt wanted to do this famous uh, story. But uh, that fits into this picture because mere months after Pearl Harbor, you have the Japan plan, uh, w which is approved at the highest levels of the Japanese government and saying, we're when we win this, we're going to occupy Japan, turn it into a certain kind of puppet state, using the emperor system, changing it in certain ways to make it a uh, perfect kind of American puppet. And uh, after that, you get the Reichauer memo. Uh, Reichauer being a professor at Harvard of Japanese history who was asked confidentially to write this thing and he gives his seal of approval to that, right? Ruth Benedict, the anthropologist, uh, student of uh, Franz Boas, the anthropologist of the Kwakwakiwak, right? Shout out to Lai Hall. We, uh, and I, <laughs> I actually know... Um, Lai Hall and I actually discussed something related to Franz Boas that I can't share on the podcast, but um, just keep, I'm going to keep that in my mind as well. Uh, 
Franz Boas is one of the anthropologists who goes in and sort of declares that the Kwakwakiwak, another group of people who have masked dramas and everything that people like Ezra Pound really uh, turn into weebs for and, and love about Japan, uh, right? It, oh, it's just like fucking ancient Greece, lads. You know, no, it, 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 they have it too, but they're sitting on a bunch of oil. They're sitting on a bunch of resources uh, that the Huron uh, Hudson Bay Company wants. So uh, you get your anthropologist to say, uh, you know, this is, you know, this level of uh, d development and therefore it's fine to take their land and their oil and all, all that, right? Uh, his student now, Ruth Benedict, she's the author of the famous book on Japanese culture, The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. And this book you hear from very midwit Japanese people in various contexts that I will not name, uh, talking about, I read that book and it taught me, I was so glad that it taught me the way to, that I can be a better Japanese person. Uh, well, the goal of the book is like, you know, the, the work we were given to do during the war, this um, anthropology at a distance, because you can't go and embed with Japanese people, obviously, because they're at war. But the idea was we're going to read the novels of Natsume Soseki and we're going to interview prisoners of war. And then based on all of that, and also talk to Japanese Americans. And uh, based on all that, you know, we, we came to the conclusion that, yes, we should leave the emperor in place, turn him into a puppet, and rule Japan in the post-war in that way. Right? Because this is the only thing you can do with these Japanese people. They are, uh, you know, at this level, stage of development or... Uh, you know, Ruth Benedict has a certain kind of, like, multicultural uh, ethos that she uh, expresses in certain kind of New Deal era pamphlets that are about, you know, very, very, you know, New, New Deal progressive. Like, this is why we're different from the Nazis. We believe in uh, a certain kind of equality and so on, right? Uh, Gerald Horn can tell you much more about the ways that that was a stance that British and American uh, establishment was having to take, was forced to take, and was not taking before that, right? But yeah, anyway, Ruth Benedict, uh, Chrysanthemum and the Sword is all about justifying actually that decision. Her whole first introduction is all about that decision to revamp the emperor system into a, an American puppet government and why that was good and why that was the best thing that could have been done with Japan, right? And that is obscured in Japanese translations uh, and Japanese people read it as like a, a, a way to, a book that teaches you how to be Japanese, oddly, uh, even though it's actually a book about how to manipulate Japanese people. So that's fun. Uh, any rate, uh, meanwhile, Ivan Morris also writing about how to manipulate Japanese people in the post-war. And that's what he really has to say here. His, his little essay is called Extremes in Japanese Politics. Again, this is 1960. He's used Ayako's father's contacts to talk to a lot of right-wingers. And the, the introduction is written by Maruyama Masao, the, the famous Japanese liberal of the post-war. Uh, he comes, he's a liberal, he's not any kind of socialist or anything, and Ivan Morris worked closely with him. So I don't know that he had any kind of communist connections. It really seems like everything he writes is just absolutely antagonistic to the communists, which is really interesting. 
Uh, but let's go through this real quick. This is my first little part of this, this episode. Um, let me begin with two quotations. First, quote, We favor an ethical education based on love of our country, pride in our people, and a belief in peace, democracy, and humanism. We must be steadfast in our respect for the soil of our ancestors and for our 2,000-year-old history. Unquote. And secondly, quote, it is our aim to restore the independent sovereignty of the Japanese nation and to establish an eternally neutral Japan. By securing a coalition between the Asian peoples, we shall strive for final emancipation from colonialism. At home, we shall work for a classless society by means of a peaceful, noble, revolutionary movement. We shall stabilize the people's livelihood by carrying out a planned economy. Unquote. So I actually, looking at this, the first one, right, it's expressing a kind of cultural, national identity anyway, and if it was in the mouth of uh, an oppressed, you know, colonized people, it would be something that uh, someone on the left would very much support because, uh, you know, everyone, every, everyone has the right to national self-determination, right? And the second quote uh, sounds very economically leftist, right? So it sounds like Ivan Morris is setting up, like, oh, you can tell, okay, the first quote sounds from a liberal point of view, okay, they're talking about national identity and so on, so the liberal is going to see that as right-wing inherently. And then the second one is talking about economic equality, so he's going to see that as left-wing. Oh, I bet he's setting this up to be, the first one is a com Japanese Communist Party, person talking nationalist which they did uh embrace nationalism as much as they could they embraced anti-communism as much as they could you know they have their own kind of liberal character arc where they try to look like a good little boy uh you know we're nationalist we love uh we're patriotic right we're not some foreign imposition being secretly funded all by the ruskies and so on right so yeah, I, I thought at first he's going to draw a contrast. The first one sounds right-wing, the second sounds left-wing. But what does he actually say? We'll continue. Most readers will probably agree that these quotations could very well have come from the same source. In fact, the first is from a speech by Mr. Nozaka, the present Secretary General of the Japan Communist Party, and the second one is from the Manifesto of the Japan Revolutionary Chrysanthemum Flag Comrades Association one of the hundreds of extreme rightist organizations that have sprung up during the post-war period. One could find dozens of similar examples, but this pair will be sufficient to suggest that, in some ways at least, the two extremes in Japanese politics are very close indeed. Both reveal strong nationalist attitudes, and despite frequent references to, quote, peace, both share a determination to pursue nationalist objectives by forceful means. Though they often use democratic slogans, their approach is thoroughly anti-democratic and opposed to the parliamentary system and to the liberal ideals for which the West stands. So, uh, pioneer of basically horseshoe theory. You can see this here. Um, uh, and then another example of that that I will give you, too, is that both sides are violent. Both sides are violent. In the case of the extreme right, the outstanding incident, instance is the assassination of the socialist leader, Mr. Asanuma. Uh, we, that's the one with the picture that, you know, people put, it's up on the internet, right? Uh, gets stabbed, right? And uh, then 
In the case of the left, what does he use? We need look no, back no further than a few months ago when thousands of demonstrators fought the police and burst into the precincts of the Diet Building to oppose the revision of the U.S.-Japanese Security Treaty. He says nothing of the violence of the police forcefully escorting the left-wing uh, Diet members out of the Diet Building so that only the right-wing members could vote, and then the Security Treaty passed. That's not violent for Morris. No, he doesn't see that as violent. Right, it's the people outside who, who don't want to be a U.S. puppet state, and they don't want to be an accomplice in the U.S.'s ongoing uh, militarism and the, and the Fourth Reich that Japan was dragged into being a central pillar of. Right. And you can see here this stance whereby Ivan Morris is setting up this, you know, shaping the, the Anglos are so good at shaping the two sides that you get, the two choices that you get. They get shaped in such a way. So here it's, do you want to be a sensible, normal person or do you want to be some crazy freak, right? And the two sides, both crazy freaks, right? But the two crazy freaks, if something happens, you know, economic collapse, you get more advanced from the socialist bloc, uh, what's going to happen, right? Uh, if, however, the country should swing to one extreme or the other, there is no doubt as to which would be the greatest disaster for the West. And it is clear that the United States in particular would use all its considerable influence in cooperating with Japanese conservatives to prevent such a development. It is doubtful that whether a swing to the extreme right, unfortunate as it might seem, seem would elicit any such reaction. He says again, uh, all of a sudden, you know, just out of nowhere, it's like, yeah, we're, we're choosing, aren't we? We're choosing which one we would side with, right? A final advantage of the extreme right in a country where the principle of continuity is so highly valued as in Japan is that their rise would in all probability not require any violent or abrupt change in the existing patterns of political power. So basically, yeah, we would implant a fascist dictatorship. That's what we should do if there's any kind of change in Japan's position, right? And the establishment kind of politicians that are in, in power, uh, the LDP, and he says in a telling moment too, it is un, it's pretty much impossible that any other power would ever take control of the government. Uh, and I bet he does know of the many uh, ways that the elections are, are bought and manipulated and so on. Uh, so they would help, right? They would help to install a fascist dictatorship, no problem. So we don't need to worry about that. And that's the plan, right? And he's saying this in this, uh, this paper that only the cream of the cream would be reading at this moment, right? Just like in 1944, you have only the cream of the cream reading uh, that Fortune magazine, which lays out the kind of, I don't think I got to the end of saying that, um, Right? The kind of thing that we discover was already decided pretty early uh, in internal U.S. Army, kind of the highest echelons there. Uh, that gets announced to the business elite in uh, 1944, right? So there's, there's the timeline, the official timeline for when things were decided and when the civilian government makes its so-called decisions, you know, is one thing. Uh, and we can peel back and we can see with some of these magazines that only circulated to the elite, you can see that there are uh, mechanisms whereby uh, the elite are being told about the plans that the military has already made. 
And uh, I, I think it might still be too big. Um, big shout out to Dane, who has uh, upgraded the Discord server so that I can uh, upload slightly larger files. But that Fortune magazine, I mean, it's on archive.org, actually. It's on archive, so you can, you can get it. But I'll put it on the Discord, either as a link uh, or something. So you can see there, it's fun to look at all the ads and things. All the ads are geared toward the boss at a whatever kind of enterprise. It is very different kind of ads than you might be used to looking at today, where the ads are just the ads for everybody, right? They used to have ads for, you know, this magazine, which is for CEOs. Um, there's one, I mean, this essay ends with a really fascinating moment too, right? It can only be suggested in conclusion that in our preoccupation with the possibility of Japan's turning to the extreme left, and allying herself with the communist powers, we should not overlook the many factors that in a time of crisis might incline her to return to some form of right-wing totalitarian dictatorship. As has been seen, the two extremes are in many ways similar and thrive on the same general climate. If we are aware of the dangers, what are the dangers exactly for him and his readers? We can at least recognize the respective symptoms even though we may be unable or unwilling to prevent the onset of the disease. What is the disease? Right? I think what he's saying is we will choose which disease Japan gets. Uh, not communism, but fascism. And we will uh, make sure that it goes in that direction. And I am someone who knows how we can, what levers we can pull and how this can be done. Right? This is what he's kind of saying. And this is the moment that he gets the Columbia job. He gets the job at Columbia in, in 1960. Ayako reports in her memoir, there, was, there were moments where Ivan would uh, be unable to sleep at night. That's a big theme. Um, Nobuko's semi-fictional autobiography novel uh, constantly is joking about how his whole family is totally insomniac they're always taking whatever bent not benzos but you know whatever they had at that time that's just all these different names of sleeping pills are constantly rattling off their their tongues and just peppering the dialogue all the time but according to ayako he at one time sort of clung to her weeping for a long time and just saying what if the world doesn't want me he had a great, uh, you know, Nobuko says he was driven by a fear of becoming his father, who was just kind of an idle, dilettante, rich person who uh, Ivan felt didn't really accomplish anything. And, that's, and that'll be real interesting for us uh, today. So I think that might be as good a segue as any into talking about who are his parents. Well, thanks to Marcus of The Return of the Repressed, I have been able to get my hands on a book called, uh, it's in Swedish, right? Um, Jorden er vart hom or something, um, which means Earth is our home. This is maybe a, a quote from uh, Ivan's mother, Edita Morris. It's the life of Edita Morris. And I, to my dismay, as someone who has spent so many years of my life learning various languages that uh, Google Glass can really translate 
between like Swedish and English frighteningly well. You can just fuck a PDF into Google Translate and it'll be fine, you know, <laughs> like uh, if it's formatted in, in a way that it works, right? Uh, you'll get a perfectly readable translation and serviceable translation. Sometimes you have to wonder what's going on here and then you can go back to the original and sort of translate a word at a time and figure it, it really out. All right, but it was fine. Uh, this this is based now on the Ivan and Adida Morris archive at Columbia University. She tracked down a whole bunch of the people from the various, you know, tangents and and tendrils of this story. Uh, tracked them down in real life and interviewed them in in a lot of cases. So it's a it's a great resource uh, on this figure, his mother. Uh, who was known as a kind of wealthy do-gooder. And even she and her husband were known as communists. They certainly were welcome in the Eastern Bloc. They had uh, membership in the French Communist Party, and they would always host big gatherings at their giant, uh, not giant actually, quite small forest chateau, chateau in the French countryside, a place called Nail. Uh, so his mother was Swedish royalty, or Swedish, you know, an aristocrat. And this is something that Ivan really relishes, you can tell. I mean, he went to Gordonston, so you, you might expect it. Uh, he, in Nobuko's novel, the character uh, based on Ivan, very obsessively uh, corrects her when she refers to a member of a noble family or someone with a peerage or a knighthood or whatever. Uh, in the improper kind of designation and level of honorific and whatever, right? You don't just say he, you have to say his, his grace, this kind of thing, right? So he really relishes that. His mother does not seem to be that sort of person, maybe, maybe genuinely. Again, we, I have real questions about his parents and, and their historic role. And I'll just say right now that I don't have answers to those questions. So I'm going to try to avoid keep, keeping on posing those questions. But you and I will just, we'll know. We know that we're not sure, okay? Uh, so she, Edita Morris, right? Edita is born uh, in the countryside in Sweden. And she's kind of raised out there in the countryside. Her mother has a pretty disastrous marriage, very short marriage, to a meatpacking uh, magnate, interestingly. Um, specifically, uh, right, the import of butter, pork, and eggs from Sweden, and bacon, ham, and fat from Chicago, which is quite an irony of fate, as uh, Bra writes. Uh, his daughter, Edita, married the grandson of the founder and owner of large parts of the meat industry in Chicago, barely 20 years later. And that's who Ivan Morris's father is. Uh, he is an heir to the Morris uh, meatpacking fortune. Uh, these are Jewish uh, immigrants out of, they were farmers in Eastern Europe, right? And they lived in terrible poverty. They were... They experienced stages of kind of industrialization and worked at the bottom there. But then uh, the patriarch kind of moves over to the U.S. and founds, the, founds these meatpacking 
uh, enterprises in Chicago, which are extremely exploitative, by the way. You know, there's family stories. A certain generation, uh, anyway, was ruthlessly crushing labor actions and everything that you would expect, right? Uh, so, you know, Ivan Morris has this thing, right? He's got, uh, his father is Jewish, uh, and that raises the question throughout of their relationship to Zionism, which Bra does not touch on at all. I don't think she's interested in it. You try to, one tries to get hints. I, Ira, his, Ivan's father is Ira Morris, and he, you know, he seems like, Here's what, I think this is a good clue. Nobuko, in her semi-autobiographical novel, reports a conversation here. Uh, Mr. Harder, they're sitting down to lunch. Uh, Mr. Harder is her name for uh, Ira Morris. Um, in a drawling avuncular intonation, talked about the book he was reviewing that week, the autobiography of a famous English newspaper proprietor. This is Robert Maxwell. So this might give you a little bit of a clue, right? Uh, he, quote, he's a fraud, Lord Samrock. So he's, Robert Maxwell is called Lord Samrock here. Not a mention of his parents, his birthplace, which I reckon was in a remote town in the Ukraine or a ghetto in Palestine. On the first page, he's already a young Fleet Street tout. His style is gush and schmaltz, laced with pathological name dropping. So very Jewish, unquote. Between cheese and peaches, I made a mental note. Find out what schmaltz is and how the Jews became so ubiquitous and powerful. All that I knew in Japan of Jews was Shylock, Anne Frank, and Auschwitz. I had no idea they had since so flourished as to be able to own a string of newspapers in England and be members of the House of Lords. You know, she, she affects a similar posture in her little essay for the um, Japan and the United Kingdom series by edited by Hugh Cortazzi, right? Uh, basically saying, I didn't know they were Jewish at all until much later. And, and she actually has a scene in her novel where she finds out one of the old family, a Jewish family friend, apparently someone whom Ira maybe almost married, uh, come, kind of takes her aside at one point or had, sets up a lunch with her to tell her actually, because <laughs> nobody was telling her that at the time. So I think maybe they weren't Zionist in any kind of, uh, certainly not in any kind of open way, you know, the, the, the questions that I still have and will always be there. But um, on the other hand, uh, she reports Ivan being very concerned about the Six-Day War in 1967, which Israel had with its neighbors Egypt, Jordan, and Syria. Now, if anything, Ivan is much more assimilationist Right. I mean, so Nobuko, to be fair, was got along less well with Ivan's parents than Ayako did, sort of famously. Uh, Edita sort of in a way never got over their divorce and she loved Ayako very much. Right. Even though Ayako reports the first time she met her new mother-in-law and uh, she took a pair of scissors and cut all the buttons off the, she said you, she was wearing a yellow dress and she said yellow doesn't suit you I'm gonna cut off all the buttons and she got those buttons don't look good so she cuts those off and everything um, but Edita was very fond of sort of showing Ayako what what to buy how to go, how to shop how to cook how to eat you know all the 
the sort of style, the, the style, right? Uh, Nobuko less sympathetically sort of reports, uh, she asking, you know, with typical Japanese thrift, sort of, why do we have to spoon the marmalade out of a perfectly nice jar into a serving dish? And uh, the Ivan character says, you know, it's a matter of style, style. If there was a famine or something, we wouldn't do it, but one has to have style. So within Edita, the mother, there is this conflict that, you know, Bra really, in a fun way, traces back to her childhood in the countryside, living with relatives in totally shabby, broken down circumstances of, of an aristocratic family fallen on hard times. And she had her best friend growing up was this local boy named Holger, who was of such a station that his two parents would be delighted to have a potato to share between them for a meal. And he used to take her to see the cows fucking. He said, you want to see such, such and such fuck? You know, the name of the cow, I guess, the name of the steer. Uh, and that's one of her memories that she reports in her autobiography or one of her autobiographical novels. You know, Bra has done all the work of sort of reading all the novels, finding what might be autobiographical for what part of uh, Ira's life and Adita's life, right? As, as well as Ivan's life to some extent. And that was her great friend. And her mother, though, after her divorce, sort of showed up on the scene and wanted to take her to Stockholm. And so, and she goes to Stockholm and joins a fancy girls school and, uh, you know, is educated by very idealistic kind of do-gooder uh, Christian women who uh, leave quite an impression on her and so on, uh, as well as her own mother. Her own mother was a bit of a do-gooder as well, and she w would often try to sort of share things with, with people. Uh, there are interesting stories there. But So before, her, on her way there, though, she gets kind of taken by surprise. She's just a little girl, you know, I, I forget, four or five, I want to say. Uh, and Holgar had given her an egg. He'd given her an egg on the condition that she promise, you know, this boy who would be happy, his whole family would be happy if they had one potato to share between themselves. He gave her a fresh egg and made her promise that she would not leave. And she promised him, uh, but she was talking to her mother, and before she knew it, she was on a train, and she said, I, I, where, where are we going? You know, we're going to Stockholm, she finds out. Uh, and she felt horrible. Her heart sank, and she took the egg out of her pocket. And this is a very touching moment in her autobiography, I think. So... That was a foundational moment. So she, but then goes and, and lives as a minor aristocrat in Stockholm. And it's there that she meets Ira eventually as she grows up, right? Um, there's debuts and stuff. Uh, a sister of her dies from falling through some plate glass accidentally, just walked off a balcony. That could happen in those days, I guess, is, is what we should conclude from that. And uh, so she meets Ira, though. Ira is the son of the idol, his own father, who's just an idol kind of aristocrat, basically. 
uh, of this Jewish meatpacking American family, right? And as Ivan said, uh, according to Nobuko, Ivan said, in those days you could buy a minor, you could buy an a ambassadorship to a minor country, a uh, minor European country. And uh, so he had a mansion there and they, they had a love marriage. They fell in love and they were, by all accounts, very close until the end. Adita never quite recovers even uh, from Ira's death first. That's in 1972 that he dies. And uh, that was a big blow to her, you know, in addition to, of course, Ivan's death in 1976. There's a cute little uh, anecdote uh, that Edita relays about her first conversation with her mother, uh, in which she declared, I, I, I don't like your father. I left him. I, I hate him. Uh, and, and her reply has a wonderful, cute kind of freshness to it. It's exactly like something a kid would say that was trying to get, you know, she really wanted to get her mother on her side, show her sympathy in a way, uh, in the language that she knew from the countryside, from Holger. She said, uh, I, I remember the Swedish, ik mag inte om skit arslan, which means, literally, I, I don't like shit asses. Yeah, I hate, I hate fucking assholes. <laughs> kind of um, swears like a sailor, this little four-year-old girl, right? But very precocious. Uh, you get a, a wonderful little picture there. And then Bra reports, I think, some kerfuffle that she had with an English translator, of her, or a Swedish translator, I think. She wrote most of her novels. She writes all these novels that are just kind of libby, liberal... Uh, kind of thing. We'll get to sort of what their content, their political orientation is. That's interesting. But uh, she at length was distinguishing between two Swedish words. She always wrote in English and then she got them translated into Swedish maybe later. Um, and she wanted to distinguish between fackert uh, versus skunhet. So I, I don't know what Vakat would be cognate with in German, but, um, you know, Schönheit in, in German, I recognize that in Schönheit, for, for beauty, the words for beauty that she wanted to use. She was very particular about that. Uh, and that goes together with her political orientation, which, uh, you know, interestingly, right after the war, you know, after the war, her very first novel, after, you know, having to, you know, they leave Europe, uh, pretty kind of at the last minute, you know, on one of the last boats that left. Um, and they, they spend most of the war in South America. They're all over the place. Um, they're always in all these different global hotspots. And you can never tell if it's because of uh, what you're thinking or if it's because of the other thing. But her first novel after the war is all about sort of like the you know what what people sometimes call kulturmensch the the man of culture who is the highest expression of humanity and that's what must be preserved at all costs it's kind of about like starving people and there's a great writer and the great writer must get his wonderful thoughts on paper uh, at the cost of anything else he must be given the meat the little bit of meat that is there when people are starving in the war 
uh, he must be given it. You know, there's, there's not a worker's uh, working class politics at all. Um, it was very interesting given her other connections and her, you know, she is like welcome in the Eastern Bloc and she moves in and out of uh, communist circles. Uh, but it's, it's very interesting. So she goes to a school called the Brumerska School for girls. It's not around anymore. Um, but uh, And then the Great Peasant Train of 1914 is something she experienced where uh, actually a right-wing kind of royalist government invited peasants to march on the capital in order to disrupt and distract from worker unrest, industrial unrest. And Edita's good do-gooder mother hosted one of those peasants and was very high-minded and thinking about, oh, it's so good that we can help this poor peasant, you know. Uh, meanwhile, of course, the, what was really help, happening is that they were disrupting the, the workers' struggle, right? Um, and they, Edita writes as well about a kind of backhanded attitude that maybe they had of like they wanted to air out the house air the peasant smell out of the house after he left ira morris's autobiography fascinatingly it's called heritage from my father uh, you might recognize that title from somewhere else and you know what uh, there might be some kind of fucking connection because uh Another thing that Edita and Ira did was kind of adopt one of the Kenya Airlift students who went to the United States to study, right? Actually, together with Barack Obama's father. And we'll get to that later. Um, Ira's cousin, Muriel, was a psychoanalyst. It was friends with Anna Freud. She tried to get analyzed by, by Zygmunt himself, but uh, couldn't get get in he was too busy um she was a resistance leader in nazi occupied austria and she saved uh the leader of probably the spa the socialist party of austria joseph buttinger uh yeah and also in his family tree was peggy guggenheim who had a villa in italy ayako writes about staying there to recover from a cold or something once Peggy Guggenheim is a famous kind of art figure, uh, esthete, and uh, pr pretty cool, interesting person. Ah, but I th I wanted to say uh, one of Ivan's early... So he has a, a wife before the two Japanese wives who was South African, apparently. Her name was Anne Wade, and she worked at a department store in New York. And Ivan, I think during, it must be during his time at Harvard, is uh, getting closer to her. There are tremendous uh, angry letters from his parents about this. Uh, they really oppose that, that match. Uh, but it seems they got married nevertheless, briefly. And then he divorced her later. But... Um, that's interesting to keep in mind, you know, when you think about if if somehow, as Edita maybe suggests, you know, when he comes back from the war, she feels like, I lost my, my boy, I lost him, he, he's a different, I don't know him, and so on. Uh, Nobuko sort of portrays the, 
the darkest she paints a very dark picture of the family and their dynamic and everything uh and and also edita's attitude toward her all her leftist friends and her her whole leftist scene uh seem, looks very cynical looks very kind of oh these hangers on oh can you get them out of here finally um all of these different figures came to their their castle at nail right to for these long uh lunch parties that would go on but it's also pretty clear if you are, you know it's not always clear that nobuko is aware of it but from what she relays of ivan's attitudes it's quite clear that he's on the far right uh to me i feel like you know it could be that he you know he's a liberal of some kind you know that he i said before he was a co-founder of the New York branch of Amnesty International, which my listeners will probably know. The one of the main founders, uh, who's no longer listed on their Wikipedia as a founder, Louis Kuttner, L-U-I-S, that's Kuttner is K-U-T-N-E-R, uh, informed on Fred Hampton to the FBI and actually may have helped even drug him. They gave He gave them a sketch of Fred's apartment where he was staying at the time when he was gunned to death furiously by the Chicago police when he was sleeping with his pregnant wife in his bed. Uh, that was in December 1969. So Ivan himself would have been in Tokyo at the time. And of course, it happened in Chicago, uh, where Ivan did not live. But nevertheless, that also situates for you just sort of where Ivan is on the political spectrum at the time, right? Don't call him shitlib super spy for nothing. But back in the early 20th century, uh, earlier generations of the Morris family and the uh, Edita's family, the Toll, the Toll family, is actually the name of her aristocratic family. Uh, they're in Sweden, which, as you will know from listening to Marcus's podcast output, is a global hotspot. And it's not just during the Cold War. It was in World War I as well. Although particularly in the Cold War, I think there's a lot to be said for the uh, unspoken, the, the unspeakable closeness of Russia to North America and the fact that in the event of real nuclear exchanges, if, uh, if they were really, if anyone was really thinking about shooting nuclear weapons, it all would go across the North Pole. It wouldn't have, you know, the entire idea of Europe as a Cold War front is totally fictional. It's imaginary. This is an imaginary battlefield that was arranged this way on purpose very carefully. Right. And I think that'll be a, a theme in this series, the way, you know, of, of Ivan Morris, maybe as a, a an arranger of the battlefield, someone who helped to design the battlefield so that it was structured in a way that would favor um, the not the not just the side, but whatever side you take, you know, it's set up so that whatever side you take, you will lose. The working class will lose, basically. But I wanted to say earlier, you know, the way that his mother came down on him uh, about this romantic relationship she didn't like. And she did that, you know, at, toward the end of his life as well, when he was single and maybe he was seeing someone that she didn't like. She got him to break it off with her. And then uh, he's about to marry the Italian countess. 
and and she loved the Italian countess. She loved the Italian countess until he suddenly ended up dead uh, in her hometown for some reason. So Sweden was this place, uh, right, with the foundation of the Soviet Union, which happens at the end of World War I, uh, already it's a place for negotiation. It's a place for brokering kind of, uh, and, and secret channels and so on. Secret back channels often are running through Sweden from that point on, right? Uh, yeah, actually, nothing is known about how Ira and Edita escaped to America at the last moment in autumn of 1939. That, and the final ships, if they were on those, that they went to South America. Uh, and they did. They were around South America. Um, they're in Haiti. They're in Haiti. And then all of a sudden, Haiti has a coup and it has a revolution. Uh, and a right-wing go- American-friendly government takes over. Supposedly, they were there for their writing. Uh, while Ivan is in Japan uh, for the war and the, or for the occupation. He doesn't see combat. Ira wanted Ivan to become a British citizen at all costs. Uh, Brow shows that this was I- Ira's idea. Uh, Nobuko says uh, they did this because they believed the prophecy of Marx and Engel, with no S, uh, that the next revolution would happen in England which I know of no such prophecy. I'm not really sure. I think half the time Nobuko doesn't understand what uh, the Morris family members have told her. Um, so it's a kind of fun, unreliable narrator situation. But uh, it sounds... It, you, you could imagine as well that Ira wanted Ivan to become a British citizen so that some kind of relationship that he, you know, you could, did, did he want Ivan to inherit a relationship that Ira had uh, or, or get, a, get a relationship that Ira had earned, uh, right? I mean, we, there's the joke about why is the name of Nick Kroll's dad blue on Wikipedia? Why is the name of you know, who's the, it's different actors, right? And it really looks like people, people get rewarded with like acting careers for their children, comedy careers for their children. Comedy is a huge one. You know, that's been coming out recently with all the comedians uh, goose-stepping for the Zion Nazis. So I mentioned that Ira and Edita are in, in Haiti, quote-unquote, for their writing, while Ivan is in Japan for the occupation. Uh, that is where, okay, there was, a, there was a coup that removes President Lescaut and installs the progressive, known as a progressive, uh, at least on Wikipedia, uh, Du Marseille Estimé. I didn't have time to look into Haitian history deeply enough to get a sense of what side he would really be on. But in any case, they're there for that. And that's a pattern with them, that they're all over the world, usually in third world countries, um, supposedly just writing away and enjoying a very stylish, aesthetic kind of resort wear lifestyle, white linen, all that, and but, but very much pitying their servants, very much pitying and very much feeling bad about the poor economic conditions, and writing about that and being, a, being real do-gooders, right, in that sense. 
Oh, and I brought up his South African wife, secret first wife, uh, Anne Wade, partly because uh, Peggy Guggenheim around this time referred to him, to Ivan, as a relative in some publication. So he's in his diary, he's on record saying, the cat is out of the bag about me being Jewish. But it turns out Anne doesn't care about that. He was worried that she might. So that speaks again a little bit toward uh, Ivan's attitude toward his own Jewishness, uh, the question of Z the Zionist question, I guess. Uh, anyway, I said last time, like Nobuko really paints his mother. She makes this big deal out about of her mother's absence during the war. She just stood up and left. Uh, but that turns out to not be true at all. So, like, is that a cover? They didn't, there was other things that they didn't want Nobuko to know? Um, you know, there's no sense that Ayako knows these things. Uh, is this is the second Japanese wife. There's a lot that she doesn't know. And it's interesting. Uh, what she doesn't know is that, so, the mother, Edita, has this passionate love affair with a Swedish fellow Swede, right, painter, Nils Dardell. Uh, the only person that she frequently spoke in Swedish with, apparently, was was Nils. And but but Ira, this wasn't she didn't leave Ira. They they had a very happy thruple. They're hanging out together down in South America. Um, they were in um, northeast Mexico at a villa in Chapala in 1940, for example. Ivan came to visit in Mexico and Guatemala on school holidays visiting Nils. Nils was at Nail a lot during Ivan's childhood. There's paintings uh, that Nils sketches anyway that Nils did of the boy, young Ivan. So um, that wasn't like some kind of secret relationship or anything. And there's quite a kind of sexual openness between mother and son that uh, Bra kind of skirts around talking about some interesting things where like she'll, um, after Ira's death, uh, she spends some time with him, and she writes almost like love letters. It almost sounds like a letter to a lover. Uh, your beautiful son, you you illumine my life, and now, but you know, I don't know. She's a widow, and she gets to see her son, uh, whatever. But there's also uh, evidence of her hanging out with Ivan's hookups. He would hook up with. Uh, all different kind of women around New York, apparently, and she would be having morning chats with them about, you know, oh, you're about to go take uh, some kind of lesson, or you're about to go to your psychotherapist. Uh, I have a psychotherapist too, you know. This kind of thing is in is in diaries and so on. So it's weird, you know, that she has a kind of openness, but then at the same time. Uh, she can tell Ivan a certain woman is evil, quote-unquote, and do not uh, see her, uh, and so on. The Baroness, the Countess from Bologna, was a, a student, perhaps. There's, I see that maybe she might have been. She was at Barnard College, which is the women's college that's almost kind of affiliated with Columbia. And I think maybe women weren't allowed in Columbia yet. That might be right. So it kind of seems like Ivan might be like fucking students and or, you know, other people. I mean, he's going to, he is very much in the Don Draper world of 1960s New York. So that's what you should imagine. He and, and Ayako as well, especially, right? When he's married to Ayako, 
Ayako is going around uh, that world and and yeah, their marriage falls apart in ways that marriages fall apart on that show as well. And in the same way as Don Draper, you have Ivan Morris is very much a part of the establishment at that time in that moment. And so he has a similar outlook, right, to Don Draper. And maybe similarly, you know, like he he has a similar drive to become a part of the elite in a way that he was not born to be quite. So uh, I, I should go for now and I think I'm going to break it up. I'm going to make a nice little cut here and uh, take it up next time. I'll try not to forget what I've already talked about, but it should be fine. I am Fergal Schmoodlock, and I have anointed you with the anointing of the kingless generation. Milliardat dollarat shanna ish fishatat. Milliardat dollarat shanna ish fishatat. How many tanks can we get today?